let's turn our attention to the book of Philippians. Um, so um, we are, we're going to be looking at the, the, the latter part of chapter one of Philippians. And uh, we want to join together in a moment of prayer um, as we consider, um, as we turn to the scriptures. So let's, let's, let's do that now. Let's just pray together. Father, once again, we come to this, your written word that reveals to us uh, your living word, uh, Jesus Christ. And Lord, like Paul, we, we seek to see the progress, the advance of the gospel. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would uh, guide our time in the scriptures today, um, our, our conversation about them, uh, our journey in them. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name. All right, so Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. We, we've been talking uh, about how, um, how this is, uh, epistles have a specific structure. And this epistle, we finished the introduction and, or the salutation, and now we're entering into the introduction. Paul is going to introduce the issue or the core idea that he is going to be dealing with in his letter. And we're going to begin in verse 12. Um, So I want you to know, brothers, um, and by that, I think he means brothers and sisters, uh, given the significance of the female um, leadership in this church. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, uh, just just starting there um, and looking at a couple of things that are going on. I, I mentioned the the um, uh, several pieces of this. We talked about how the church had been started in two um, two houses, uh, the house of Lydia and the house of the Philippian Philippian jailer, and that um, as near as we can tell, the people that had been there at the beginning are still in the leadership of the church in Philippi. And so he's greeting them and he's telling them, um, setting the scene for where this letter is written from. And so he is um, immediately starting with this uh, idea of um, here. This is this is uh, um, this is all happened for the advancement or the progress of the gospel. Um, Now. What he's talking about, what has happened, he takes everything that's been going on in his life, all right, and he wraps it all together. Now, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that there has been all kinds of things going on. He was arrested. He was taken. He was imprisoned in Caesarea Philippi. He's arrested in Jerusalem. He's imprisoned. Then he gets on a boat. The boat crashes. He, I mean, there's just, he gets bit by a snake. I mean, just everything that you could possibly imagine happens. And then the guy winds up in Rome. Uh, living uh, probably under house arrest in in the in a region of Rome relatively close um, to where uh, Caesar's palace was uh, on the Palatine Hill. His his mention here uh, in verse thirteen so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. That word the Greek word is is praetorion. All right, this is the praetorian guard. Um, particularly what's called the cohortus urbanus, um, the urban cohort. Um, 
in Rome, uh, Caesar Augustus had established 10 cohorts uh, or uh, units of the Praetorians. Now, Praetorians, their job was to guard senators. He establishes a specific guard to guard him. And there are two groups. There's two fortresses in Rome. One is way on the east outside of the walls, and it's built like a Roman um, like a Roman fortress. It's a square fortress. And then there's another fortress inside the city um, that is, is for the, the three, what are called the urban cohorts, so the cohortus urbanus. These are city troops, and their entire job is to be wherever the emperor, the princep, which is actually the term they use, um, wherever he is, they are. They're always on the outside. And they, their castle was to the north of the Palatine Hill and just past the, um, just past the, uh, the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, which was the chief god of Rome. And every morning, the Roman, in, the Praetorians would march down the road to the Palatine Hill and they would relieve the guards that were outside the, the emperor's palace. They would uh, escort any prisoners that might be heard from the emperor to outside of his palace to await trial. And so probably what Paul means is that he's living up in the house arrest somewhere up in the northwestern corner of Rome. And every morning, a praetorian comes to his door and says, let's go see if the emperor is going to hear you today. And he walks down the road with the Praetorians. He stands outside the, the, the Palatine Hill, Caesar's palace. Um, Caesar might be going to the Senate. Caesar might be going somewhere else. He might be going to one of the temples because he was, uh, he was Pontifex Maximus. He was the high priest. And so he had to go to different places. Um, and maybe he hears some of the prisoners. Maybe he doesn't. And at the end of the day, then the prisoners go back. And they go back to their houses. The Praetorians walk them back. So imagine you're the Apostle Paul, and you every single morning are being woke up by a Praetorian guard, and it's a different guard. And every day you're walking to the emperor. Well, what are you going to do if you're Paul? He just starts working his way through the Praetorians, telling them about Jesus. He is just. He's that guy. He's like, hey, so let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about what's going on. And, and he is walking down the street telling him, and he's got a captive audience. They can't go anywhere. They're guards. They have to stay there. So he says, I'm just going to tell you guys about, about Jesus. And so he says to the Philippians, he says, look, he says, I know that what's going on with me is not good. I'm in jail. I'm in Rome. I'm not able to travel. Um, He's basically on a stay-at-home order. He's not allowed to escape this place that he doesn't know. Paul doesn't know Rome. He, he, he had never been there before he comes as a prisoner. And, but he says, ah, you know what? It's, it's working out because the whole Praetorian Guard has heard about Jesus now. They've heard about the gospel. And to all the rest. So his neighbors, the people he's walking by, Paul is just, this is Paul. He is a gospel machine, and he is going to tell people about Jesus because it means something to him. It matters. It's the core of who he is. Um, and so he says, this is what's happened for me. And so the Imperial Guard, the Praetorians have heard it. The rest uh, have heard it. Everybody else has heard it. And he says in verse 14, 
most of the brothers, so he's talking about the church in Rome, um, but he's also talking about uh, Philippi. And so now he's starting to expand his vision. He says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says, so look, he says, basically, here I am. I'm in the Roman capital. I'm under capital punishment. He was supposed to be killed for what he's doing. He's still alive. He's still preaching. And so it gives people an impetus. They say, man, we can preach the gospel. We can be a part of this. And so they're becoming more bold to speak the word. They're, they're abounding in um, their boldness. He uses the same word um, way back when, he, when he's talking about um, in, uh, uh, where is it? In verse 9, he says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He uses the same Greek word, malon to describe um, that the boldness of the believers. He says, so this is, this is creating a, a world where, where the Christians are more bold to speak. And then in verse 15, he begins a, um, a parenthetical criticism of false teachers in the church. So he's going to, he says, so most everybody, most of the brothers, um, have become bold to speak the word without fear. But then he talks about another group. He says this in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, or so what, is what he says. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, most commentators, most people talking about this, they stop the sentence there, and that's a mistake. His sentence does not end there, even though there's a period in your English Bible. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So I often hear this, this passage um, used by people to say that it doesn't really matter whether your motives are pure or not. You know, people, you know, what matters is that we preach Christ. Let's not worry about the details. Let's not talk about doctrine. Let's not talk about differences. Let's just, as long as you preach Christ, because look, Paul looked at people who were preaching in envy and rivalry, and he said, but all that matters is that Christ is preached. And I always respond to that. You can't read this verse without reading the rest of the book of Philippians, where Paul flat out condemns the people who are doing this. So, so and it doesn't fit with Paul. Paul spent his entire life correcting people for doctrinal and procedural errors in the church. And now suddenly he goes, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, you know, you could be envious, you could be strifes, you could be rivalry. But, you know, as long as you're preaching Christ, that's okay with me. That is not what Paul says at all. Um, and so don't, if you, people will sometimes do that. It is almost always, and I know I get myself in trouble when I say stuff like this, but when somebody makes that argument, 
that argument almost always is an argument that thinly veils the reality that they don't want to deal with confronting false doctrine. They don't want to deal with confronting uh, poor uh, methods. My dad used to always tell me, because when I was in Bible college, um, way back in the day, um, you know, back in the 90s, which is, you know, ancient history for some of you and, you know, middle life, midlife for others. Um, when I was in college, they were, it was all about method. It was all about how are you going to get butts into seats? How are you going to build a big church? And my father, who has never pastored a church, um, even half the size of Bedford Road, um, and has his quirks and all of his, you know, interesting old school dinosaur issues. Um, but my father said to me, he said, because they would say, well, it's, it's not, it's not about, it's, it's, it's the methods. It's not about the doctrine. And my dad would always say to me, methods come from doctrine. Doctrine leads to methods. He says, you have to, you have to act as you believe, not act despite what you believe. And, um, and the reality is so many people want to just poo-poo away doctrine and truth um, because they say, well, but what's important is that we're preaching Christ. But that's not biblical. What's important is that we're preaching Christ as Christ is, all right? As the scriptures reveal him to us, not through envy and rivalry and strife and all those things. So I want to just look real quick at what Paul says is the motivation and behavior of these people he's going to deal with later in the book. These are people who are um, well-intentioned, I think. I don't, I don't think that they're, they're evil people that he's dealing with. They're well-intentioned, but they're misinformed. And they're well-intentioned, but they're not all the way through. They, they stop short of what the scriptures actually say. So look at how he describes them. So first of all, he says in verse 15, he says, they preach from envy and rivalry. Now, envy is when I look at someone else and I wish that I had what they have. I envy him. Rivalry is saying, basically taking envy and turning it into self-justification. All right. So, so looking at somebody else saying, you know, oh, well, I wish I had what they have. And then saying, well, what I have is just as good. So, so maybe looking, you know, and he doesn't give us details, but it's this idea of saying, well, you know, I basically, I'm preaching the gospel to achieve some goal, some human physical goal, some standard that I've set of me and somebody else. I want to be like them. Um, uh, uh, not Tom Rainer. I'm trying to remember what the guy's name is. Um, uh, it's blank. I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, uh, I was at a church growth seminar one time where all the guys were preaching. They were talking about how to grow your church and all this stuff. Um, and uh, and the guy, this one speaker stands up and he says, and I'll never forget when he said this. He goes, I really hate speaking at these kind of conferences because I think that these kind of conferences are pornography for pastors. And everybody's jaw dropped. And he said, well, what is pornography? It's looking at someone else's wife and desiring her rather than your wife. He said, so when you look at somebody else's church and you desire to have their church, 
you're you're turning your back on the church that the Holy Spirit gave you. And needless to say, uh, he didn't get invited back the following year. Um, but but what he was saying was, you can't pastor, you can't preach, you can't live your Christian life out of envy and rivalry and desire. You you can't drive. It has to be driven with from Christ. So he says they're motivated by envy, envy and rivalry as opposed to being motivated from goodwill. Simply the intention of honoring Christ. And then he says, um, so then he inverts. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And those that preach from goodwill, they do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So he says, he says, that's that's the good motivation. He says the former pro- proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so now he's revealing. So first of all, he sees kind of the outside is envy and rivalry. So they're they're behaving this way because they there's this outward desire. But then inwardly, the problem is that they have a selfish ambition and they are not sincere. Um, the, the, the Latin word sincere, although the Greek word doesn't mean this, the Latin word sincere means without wax. Um, and it comes from this idea that when you were making a sculpture, if you made a mistake, um, you know, a marble sculpture, if you made a mistake, you could use wax to fill in a gap and you wouldn't be able to see it. I mean, we do this. I mean, we do this with, you know, boots. Um, you, you got your, you got your, your, your boots. Now, now I know Wesley's smiling because now the military just has permanently shiny boots. They're like manufactured. No, you guys still gotta polish them. Only the dress shoes are uh, the plastic now. All right. So you still gotta, you still gotta polish your boots, right? Well, what do you use to polish your boots? You use wax. You, you put wax on them, and then you, if you're, real, you're one of those guys that uses a lighter and melts the wax so it fits into the cracks, and, and then you buff it, and it looks shiny. Well, that's not leather. That's wax, but it makes it look perfect. Well, sincere means a sculpture without wax to fill in the gaps. So someone who is sincere is someone who is honest about who they are. So you're marred, you're scratched, you're broken. That's okay. But you're being honest. But uh, when you're not sincere, it's when you're filling in what should be substance and truth with some empty thing that's going to just melt and fall apart. Right. Um, And we could use all kinds of illustrations about this. The programmers in the in the group could tell you about, you know, somebody who just decides to throw a box of block of code in there that works for now and uh, and then discover later that it made everything blow up. Um, you know, or or we could talk about we could talk about carpenters shimming things, um, uh, and and how they they get it to just it works well enough. We could see guys guys that work on cars that kind of get the alignment close enough. It's okay, you know. There's all these different little things that happen, but he says he says that these these false brothers, these um, those who are preaching the gospel from rivalry, um, they have a selfish ambition. And it's not sincere. Now, sincerity doesn't mean perfection. And on one side, it doesn't mean that you're perfect and holy. I mean, blessed God, saved in 1968, sanctified 1975, haven't sinned since. That's not what he means. 
But he also doesn't mean on the other side bragging about our imperfections, you know, our flaws. And, 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 and you know, I, and I don't know if you, I mean, we, we have all heard it. Somebody who humble brags about their sinful past, you know, and they got to go through and list every single sin they ever committed to tell you, you know, how wonderful they are somehow. We don't need to do that. We need to just be honest with ourselves. You know, we need to be honest about ourselves to others, and we got to be honest with ourselves about others, because that's where the gospel shines through. Grace is about imperfect people. But when we try to fill in what grace fills in on our own, we become insincere. We have to be honest about the truth of who we are, because when we're honest about the truth of who we are, the gospel shines brighter. So he says they're insincere, they're selfish. And worst of all, they want to afflict me. Paul says the problem, he says, look at what they're doing. They're actually using my imprisonment for the gospel to advance their own agenda. They're actually taking what God has done, because remember, he says in verse 12 that his imprisonment had served to advance the gospel. He says they're actually taking what God has done to advance the gospel and advancing their own selfish ambition. And then he says, what then? Only that in every way, verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, what does he mean there? He is not rejoicing over the preaching and pretense, and I think that's important. He's, pre he's rejoicing over the declaration of the gospel. He's not justifying and saying, don't worry about all this, all these issues. But he has to start from a place that isn't confrontation. And what do I mean by that? He's going to confront them like an Oreo cookie, right? Um, what do I mean by that? Um, well, think about the best part of an Oreo cookie. What is the best part of the... Is it, have you guys seen the Oreo thins where they got rid of some of the frosting? What is the point of that? I want more frosting. I tend to take double stuffed and mega stuffed Oreos, open them up and put the stuffing together to make a bigger Oreo. I like, I want more Oreos. See right there. I want mega stuffed, triple stuffed, quadruple stuffed Oreos. Now I want the old froth, the old, uh, the old cream back too, because they changed the cream, but but I want a big, I, I don't want the cookie. The cookie is there to deliver the cream on the inside of that Oreo. That's what it's for. Paul gives us kind of a, a cookie with his presentation. So he opens up with kind of a, you know, as long as the gospel is preached, that's kind of the cookie. All right. But the inside, the core of what he's going to say is going to be countering the false teachings of these doctrines. Yeah, that's right, Brian. I had the banana sermon a couple years ago. Now I have the Oreo cookie sermon. All right. Ray Berry still hasn't forgotten the banana sermon. Right. So, so um, they, when we, we look at this and we say, okay, here's this. He's kind of given the first layer of, okay, this is, I'm, I'm happy the gospel is being preached. But the inside of what he's actually going to deal with is going to be that the gospel isn't the cookie. The gospel is the cream. The gospel isn't the outside, it's the inside. And these guys are all on the outside and they need to be corrected and they need to come into alignment with Christ.
Because what he's going to do, what he's setting up, and, and I can't wait till we get there, but what he's setting up is one of Paul's most masterful works of poetry, um, which is in chapter two, what's called the Christ hymn. Paul is, he, Paul is setting us up to kind of get beyond the surface of this guy preaches that way and it's envious and selfish ambition. He, he doesn't want to answer envy and ambition with just well, don't be envious and don't be ambitious. He's drilling down. He's going to take that layer off of the Oreo cookie and then he's going to get into the middle of it, which is Christ. And a fully realized understanding of who Christ is that then fuels his understanding of the gospel. And that understanding of who Christ is and what the gospel is allows Paul to answer false doctrine. One of the biggest problems that I have ever had in, in uh, doctrine classes and Bible classes and stuff like that, and I don't know if you guys know, so on Monday, I start my PhD work, all right? So I start my first seminar for my doctorate. And so I've been reading books and everything, all this stuff, super excited. It, yay, you know. Um, I got accepted back in November, but I had to wait for a pandemic to have the time to be able to work on some of this stuff. Um, but uh, one of the challenges I have always had in academic settings is I do not believe that doctrine should be written in response to false doctrine. Um, so, so in other words, when you write your, your statement of faith, as a, uh, when, you, when you're ordained as a minister, you have to present the ordination council with a statement of faith. And most statement of faiths are written in the sense of, I am not this, I am not that, I am not this, I am not that. It goes through and says, I'm not this, I'm not that. When I first came to uh, what was Heritage Baptist, um, we had a big, long statement on, on you know, what was not the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this, and it's not this. I don't like talking that way. I don't like defining myself by what I am not, right? I want to define faith by who Christ is, what the gospel is, and what that means. And I think that if we define ourselves positively that way, and I know it sounds weird because I'm the glass half empty guy, but if we, but if we define ourselves positively, then false doctrine, false teaching, bad ideas, all these things, they become illuminated. But in order for us to define ourselves that way, we have to really get to that level of sincerity. We have to go all the way down to the beginning. Um, I was told one time, somebody said to me, uh, I don't know if you guys know this about me. Um, I have a tendency to question authority. I don't know if that's ever come up. Um, but uh, I, I, I was in a conversation and I kept questioning the things that were being brought up because they were false and um, they were just misled. It wasn't in a church setting. It was somewhere else. And I had somebody say to me, how can you go through life like this? I said, go through life. How? He said, how can you go through life questioning everything? And I said, how can you go through life without questioning everything? How can you how can you go through life and just accept that whatever some whatever people say about the things you don't want to work on is correct? We always have to go back to code. 
we always have to go back to Christ. I want the center of the Oreo, not the cookies. I want Christ. The cookies will change. I don't care what the cookies are. I don't care if it's a golden Oreo or a chocolate Oreo or a whatever other flavor of Oreo they're going to come out. I do care whether the filling is lemon or not. That's gross. That is wrong. Oreos are supposed to have white cream filling. That's, that's what is supposed to be in Oreos because those birthday cookie or birthday cake Oreos and they're sticking all kinds of, get that other. Oreo is the cream, man. Oreo is not the cookie. That's not an Oreo. So I know I'm going to get these angry rants about Oreos, right? Also, Fig Newtons aren't cookies. I don't care what anybody says. Um, but but you want to get to the you want to get to the the core of it. You have to get down to the cream of it. You've got to get to Christ. So rather than dealing with the conflict on the surface, Paul says, "I rejoice that the gospel is advancing," and then he's going to get down into the layer. And once he gets through dealing with who Christ is, then he will answer the false doctrine. Then he will answer the false teachers. But he has to take us back to Christ first. And this is, this is his introduction to that will then lead to the Christ hymn, which again, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, I think it is. I believe personally, and it's just a personal opinion, I believe Paul's most masterful work I think that he creates something that you could spend a lifetime unpacking in, in chapter two, uh, Christ emptying himself and all of these things taking on the form of man. He, he creates this unbelievably doctrinally rich poem or song. Um, and, and from there, he can unfold what it means to be true. Now, I have to say, by the way, it takes Paul a long time to come up with this because he writes this in 60. Uh, 61, 62, um, and he's been ministering for 20 years. So that's a positive. It tells me that, you know, you don't have to come up with your masterwork for a long time in ministry. It's okay, you know, you get through. But um, so as Paul sets that up, I think it's so important. I think it is so important for us that when we can, when we are challenged in our faith, and this is kind of the application part of this, when we are challenged in our beliefs by something that appears to be off, whether it's visibly selfish or envious or, you know, whatever, what we need to do is not define how we're going to respond by what they say, what's being said. We go back to code, we get to the middle of the Oreo cookie, we get to Christ, and then we build out from him. Everything vectors off of Christ in the church. We cannot afford to be any other way. You say, well, that's awful idealistic. It's awful minimalist. I mean, theology is much bigger than Christ. First of all, theology is never bigger than Christ. But secondly, if you don't base it on Christ, you're not a Christian. That, that's, it's in the name, Christian. We are supposed to base everything off of Christ. And in order to do that, we have to understand him. We have to get down to the deep. We've got to bury ourselves into it. Um, and, and somebody just posted an Oreo cookie, didn't they, Christy? You just posted an Oreo, on my, Oreo cookie on my Facebook page. Um, I just got a notification come up. Um, we have to get down to that place. You want to answer false doctrine. 
you want to deal with Jehovah's Witnesses, you want to deal with Mormons, you want to deal with all the apologetics of this world, get to Christ. Dig down until you get to the foundation of Christ. Because I guarantee you, if you start at Christ, if you start at, at Paul's Christology, Paul's belief, and you start to work your way out, you will immediately start to see where they're going off. And you know what? If you get down there and you start digging and you find that they're not going off, that means that they're vectoring with you. They're tracking with you on Christ. That's a plus. That's a positive. That's a good thing. But you won't know whether they agree with you or not, whether you should agree with them or not, unless you go back to Christ. Um, and I'll leave with this. This is, this is our, our vocation as Christians, to know Christ and to invite others to know him. It fits in our, our vision statement. We create environments where people do what? Encounter Jesus and journey together. And that together is journey together with Christ and his church. This is who we are as Christians. Not, not that we have to walk around attacking everybody that we think are false teachers. We have to walk around calling everybody to Christ.